I was taking a bus ride through the snow-capped Rockies in Colorado, complaining to myself about this guy at my church who drove me crazy. So begins Christina Cleveland's book called Disunity in Christ. Dr. Cleveland writes about Ben, the only other unmarried person in her small church, and thus the person that she was she kept getting paired with at social events. Ben was the epitome of the type of Christian she'd become successful at avoiding. The wrong Christian. Wrong Christian, she writes, was not a thinker. He hadn't read a book in the previous two years, although, come to think of it, he did read a book a few years back about a woman's rightful place in the home. He voted based on one or two issues, abortion and homosexuality. Wrong Christian lacked cross-cultural sensitivity and somehow managed to avoid spending quality time with anyone who didn't share his race and culture. He was more concerned with the preservation of the Second Amendment than the First. He was a card-carrying and proselytizing Calvinist with tulip above his kitchen stove. He voted Republican, Republican, Republican. Dr. Cleveland continues. Curiously, Right Christian was a lot more like me. While driving her Prius en route to the farmer's market, she self-righteously zipped past wrong Christian's lumbering SUV, blithely unaware of the fact that Prius owners are consumers, just like everyone else. She was a woman of the world. She was well-traveled and could thrive in any cultural setting, except for those conservative Christian ones in the flyover states, naturally. She boasted of the ethnic diversity of her friend group, she hopped onto the poverty, social justice, and environmental bandwagons, as well as any other bandwagons that were in vogue at the time. She wasn't bound by political party affiliation. Rather, she thought for herself and voted independently. In other words, she voted Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. Though the details might differ, I suspect most of us have these frameworks of right Christians and wrong Christians. My right Christian might be your wrong Christian, and vice versa. We condemn the wrong Christians, or we distance ourselves from them, or we say, well, they're not Christians at all. And often we do that in the name of defending Jesus. At least I do. There's just one problem. That's not what Jesus does. And it's not what Jesus asks us to do. Our chapter from Philippians today is familiar to us. It's one of those spiritual comfort food passages. But what struck me this week was Paul's audacious instruction to the church to be not just like-minded, as the NIV puts it, but of the same mind, having the same love, united as in of one spirit and one mind, one thinking. How is that possible? It feels more impossible now than ever, doesn't it? How could Paul expect this as anything other than a noble ideal? It comes down to one word for us today. Humility. How does humility lead us toward unity? I have three thoughts, as a good preacher ought to have. First, humility doesn't serve a party or promote our own interest. Instead, it is always working for the good of the other. Paul gives a set of contrasts in verses 3 and 4 that point us toward what humility does and doesn't do. 
Now, humility is considered a virtue in our society, at least it's given lip service, but it wasn't in Paul's time. Roman culture was all about glory, status, fame. They would have loved social media. Who could get the most likes and followers and clicks? They would have loved it. Humility in that culture was something that only lower status people had. It was basically the same as humiliation. There wasn't a difference between the two. Slaves, the poor, women, they were humble. No one would choose that for themselves. So it was a radical thing for Paul and the Christians to begin to proclaim humility. Again, they would have heard it the same as humiliation, as a strength, not as a degrading weakness. Paul tells the church at Philippi to do nothing out of strife. That is, factionalism, rivalries, you might say party interest. Nor conceit, vainglory, seeking glory or honor for yourself. Again, Roman culture was great at both of those things. And you know what? So is ours. Don't operate like the surrounding culture, Paul says. You are to be different. You are to embrace humility, which looks like two things in these verses. Regarding others, not just as equal to, but better than yourselves. And not paying attention to your own interests, but instead to those of others. Let's pause here for a minute to recognize that humility and the call for humility has sometimes been used as a weapon to abuse power, especially those of us who are women might have a hard time hearing this call. It's also been used against those who've been oppressed. Well, that is the exact opposite of Paul's meaning here. Humility is not a weapon against other people. It also doesn't mean giving up healthy self-image and boundaries. Remember, to love my neighbor as myself, I still have to love myself. Humility does, however, mean a reorientation and a recognition that I don't just get to make my own decisions without thinking about you, and vice versa. It means that we aren't supposed to form parties in the church, the good Redeemerites and the bad Redeemerites. It means no one in our congregation is to be viewed as less honorable or valuable or worth listening to than others, and that we aren't to view ourselves as better than others either. Whatever our status is out there, in a sense, we give that up in here in order to serve one another the way Jesus did. Humility knows no party loyalty, but is always working for the good of the other. Second, humility looks like choosing not to use personal advantages for personal gain. The heart of this beautiful poem that starts in verse 6. The poem is Paul's illustration for the Philippians of the mindset they are to have, of what Christian humility looks like. The story of Jesus is what should inspire thinking so that we have the same mind. That same mind, Paul uses that term twice, once in verse 2, again in verse 5. And actually, he uses it, I think, 17 times in this book. He must want us to pay attention to that. What does it mean to have the same mind, the same way of thinking? Does it mean agreeing on everything? Does it mean Otto and I should sit down until we agree on every single thing that you can think of? I don't think we'd be able to do that, Otto. I'm not as big a fan of Nixon as you are. Well, I like how Lynn Kohick puts it, this, agree, this having the same mind. Having the same mind means having the same outlook on the world, on the work of God in the world and on one's responsibilities in light of those truths. Same outlook on the world, on the work of God in the world, on what we are to do in light of that. Now, that still feels pretty hard, doesn't it? 
which is why Paul knows we need a really good illustration to help us get there. So he turns us toward Jesus. What does Jesus do? Anybody still have those those bracelets? What did Jesus do? The key word is in verse 6. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. You might be familiar with translations along the lines of he didn't um, view equality with God as something to be grasped. It's a tricky word, but I think the translation in the NIV is a good one. The idea is that Jesus had all the power and the privilege in the universe. Jesus was God. But instead of using that power and privilege the way the Roman gods did, for his own self-interest, he gave it up. The lowest of the low. Not just a servant, as our translation, but a slave. The lowest status possible in that society. And he went through the most shameful death of that society as well humiliation for our good. Jesus had privilege, and he chose not to use it for himself, but instead to give everything of himself for our good and the Father's glory. There's a lot of talk right now about privilege, isn't there? Another way to put that is simply advantages, earned and unearned. Jesus looked at all of his advantages, and he chose not to use them for himself, not to hold on to them for his own gain. He poured himself out for us and for the world. Part of the implication here, I think for Paul, for us too, is that the things that are our advantages are not just for us. They are for others, too. Your money is not just for you. Did you know that? Mine is not just for me and for my family. It's for the good of the church community, for others, however God would direct us to use it. Collections in the New Testament. You might be aware that Philippians was in part a a thank you note. Um, They had sent Paul money. But Paul was always raising money from churches to help other churches. Poorer churches helping richer churches. Maybe Gentile churches helping Jewish churches. Uh, Churches with crossing ethnic lines. More financial advantages giving to those with less. It's there. Our jobs, our statuses, our spiritual gifts are all to be used for others. Even the privileges that sometimes come with gender and skin color too. This morning as I was wrestling with my sermon still, I picked up this book called Might from the Margins by Dennis Edwards. He's a New Testament professor. He's been a colleague of our own Scott McKnight, mentor of Daniel Hanlon. He is also black. And the chapter that I turned to just happened to talk about Philippians 2. Can you imagine that? I felt like that was a sign. He calls Philippians 2 a radical proposal for unity based on humility, considering others more important than oneself. And he writes, this sounds impossible and downright un-American. Now, he has a charge to white folks and to people of color that I want to give to us. I'm not going to read the charge to people of color, because most of us here are not people of color, but you can read it. And it's this. In our times, the way that the dominant culture can practice humility is to relinquish power in order to learn from the disinherited. In other words, those of us who are part of the dominant white culture might need to practice, do need to practice, a posture of humility toward our brothers and sisters of color 
which will involve giving up power. We have to wrestle with that. I don't know what to do with that. You might not either. But humility comes into play there too. Whatever advantages or privilege we have, they aren't something to cling to or fear or feel guilty about or deny. They are to be surrendered to the Lord and used in obedience, not for personal gain, but for the good of others. Third, humility is fundamentally a posture of dependence on and obedience to the Father. Humility recognizes that we are creatures, beings created by God and totally dependent on his grace and provision that we're limited in our abilities and particularly in our perspective. We don't see the whole picture. We don't see things perfectly, which is why what we seek is the thinking, the attitude, the perspective of Christ Jesus himself. Humility freely says, I could be wrong. Humility leads us to worship and repentance, recognizing how little we have control over, how very many things we can't fix, grieving the planks in our own eyes alongside as we grieve for the sins of the world. Jesus, in becoming human, entered this radical vulnerability and dependence upon the Father alongside us. I was remembering this week that Jesus didn't have a job that earned him money. He was totally dependent on other people and on the Father working through other people to, to provide his daily needs. He radically trusted as he saw how the Father provided for him. His radical trust enabled him to be radically obedient, even when it led to humiliation and death. And his radical obedience ends, of course, with radiant glory, praise, and honor. For us, too, humble dependence on the Father goes hand in hand with trust and obedience, as well as the assurance that we will receive honor at the end. It's that obedience Paul has in mind when he tells the Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says, you're those who are in Christ. Now you have to figure out together what that looks like in the world and in your communities. It's not a matter of earning your salvation. It's of working out what it means in the world. Now, I'm very aware that sometimes calls for unity and humility are just another way of saying, pipe down and stop causing trouble. And I hope you understand that's not my goal here at all, and not Paul's either. Humility is something that, as Bernard of Clairvaux points out, points us toward truth. That is, the clearest possible understanding of self, others, world, and God. Humility walks us toward truth. Humility doesn't shy away from difficult truths about ourselves, our community, our nation. Humility says, I can face the truth, even hard truths, because I know I can trust the Spirit. And I know that I am beloved of the Father. We need this humility in our community too, as we are trying to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You know all the things, right? Divisions and politics and COVID and race and justice and immigration. Eek! Having the same mind the same way of thinking about the world and ourselves and our neighbor is possible for us in our community, in this community, when we in humility listen to the Spirit together. It is possible. You know why? Because Jesus is alive and active. 
And we can actually come to see things as he sees them, as we listen to each other and to the Spirit. One commentator pointed out, and it was so helpful to me this week, we don't just look back to Jesus as our example. We look up and we ask him, what do you think about this? Help us. And we cannot do this without that posture of humble dependence and vulnerability with God and with one another. Humility is a posture that looks like this. When we disagree, when we agree, when we don't know what to do, when everything just seems like too much, we hold our hands out to each other and we hold our hands open to the Lord. As with many of you, this week I've been reading and hearing about the life and legacy of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm partial to the name Ruth, as you might know, my daughter's name. I also have a doll, a Ruth Bader Ginsburg doll, in my office, thanks to John Dichtel. And I don't really know much about her, honestly. You might be familiar, as I learned this week, with the story of her friendship with Justice Anton Scalia. Complete opposites, ideologically but they had a deep and sincere friendship over many years. Apparently, Justice Scalia used to send Justice Ginsburg roses for her birthday every year. And as Christianity Today tells the story, seeing him with the roses, Judge Jeffrey Sutton once asked, so what good have all these roses done for you? Name one 5-4 case of any significance where you got Justice Ginsburg's vote. Scalia replied, some things are more important than votes. Now, few knew the power of the Supreme Court more than Scalia, but he recognized that Ginsburg was greater than her vote. There are real issues in our culture and in our nation and in the church. There are real issues that we're talking about here, and these things matter. They matter because they affect people, and people matter. But as we address these things, we must never forget that Jesus' command to us was not, go out and win the Senate, go out and keep the Senate, but love one another. And that Paul's command to us as well, do not look just to your own interests, but to the interests of others, in humility and in love. Remember Ben from the beginning of the sermon, that wrong Christian that Dr. Cleveland talks about? She returns to him later in the chapter. Apparently one summer when there were huge wildfires near Santa Barbara, not this year, I mean, this was, it happens every year now, doesn't it? She writes that most of the church people were, you know, taking care of their own needs and, and preparing for evacuation, but that Ben was approaching the fire zone. He was checking on people in the church, offering to do anything to help them, didn't matter if he agreed with them, if he held different views, if they dressed differently. She says, during that summer, Ben showed me what it looks like to relativize differences in order to love one another in sacrificial ways. As a member of the family of God, Ben uniquely demonstrates the character of Jesus. Ben is essential to me. Ben is essential to me. And I would never have recognized this if I had forever cast him as wrong Christian. We need each other. Whatever side of the aisle you land on, whatever <laughs> color your skin is, we need each other. I could list all the people 
that I disagree with, that I need. I need people who don't think I should be up here preaching, and they need me. I need Helen Bass. I need Catherine. I need Catherine's kids. We need each other. We are the body of Christ. True unity for us here at Redeemer comes not through not talking about controversial things, but by coming to each other in love and humility. May the Spirit grant us this grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.